My guest today is Bradley Mason, and we're going to talk a bit about a number of different dynamics in sort of white evangelical subculture. But first, Bradley, could you talk a little bit about your faith background? Sure. So I personally have been in Reformed churches for probably since, I think, 99. So what is that? 22 years or so. So I was in the RCS, Reformed Church in the United States, for probably the last 20 years, 21, um, until this last year when, when we left that church and we've been now just attending a PCA, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, here locally. I don't know if you know Lance Lewis or read anything Lance Lewis has written. He, he's the pastor there. And, um, and Lamont English, it's also, he's on Twitter. Um, he's the in, uh, an intern at the church as well. So it's been a pretty cool place for us to go, different than where we were before. So we've been there. They just opened up for uh, in-person services two weeks ago. So we've just been there twice. We'd visited a lot of, you know, several times in the past. So kind of that's where I've been coming from is the reform background pretty much for my entire adult life. So that, Great. That, yeah, obviously there's um, a lot of differences that have developed, I would say, between sort of the, the reformed American tradition and kind of where we're at mentally at this point. Um, what do you mean by that? Obviously, a lot of the Reformed churches are very socially conservative, um, very, uh, by and large, pretty patriarchal, traditionally very, very, very white, very um, holding their theologians on a pedestal, slave owners or not, kind of just, I would say, if I were being nice, like, socially unaware. If I were to be less nice, I would be happy to be socially unaware. Maybe they are. I don't know. I'm trying not to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's, sometimes you have to wonder if like how deliberate it is. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I've seen, I've seen it a lot. I, it's, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of defensive slavery floating around. There's a lot of defending of, of segregationists of the past. There's a lot of denial about this specific history, American history in particular. There's a lot of denial about the history of the church in America. There's a lot of assumption that the church, the reformed churches are somehow like a replica of the first century church or something. I don't know. That is just so profoundly false. It is a product of Europe. Right? right, predominantly in the 17th century. I mean, there's just no way around it. That's what the hymns are, the the liturgy, the everything is, you know, it's popular, continental and English music and words, and, and then that's become normalized. And and I think that that kind of sets the pace for how a lot of things are thought about. And I won't say all Reformed churches, but pretty broadly, I think that would be safe to say. Yeah, what are your thoughts on the, yeah, I, maybe I, I guess to some extent I, I wasn't paying attention uh, before uh, the last few years, but it's not as though I knew nothing about the subculture, and I just, 
didn't remember it being so virulently misogynistic. Like that seems to that that seems to have yeah. been. I feel like there's been an uptick in that recently in the last few years. As I say, maybe I just wasn't paying attention uh, because you know I'm a I'm a it, dude it and I'm a white dude, so I don't I, I don't have to yeah. confront these things. Uh, I'm I'm perfectly happy to to admit that I was just ignorant about it. Um, but it just seems to be more kind of in your face, right? I don't know about within reformed churches as much or Presbyterian churches. I mean, maybe it's coming. I'm talking about like, so that, so like the, the, the reaction to like Amy Bird's book and the stuff that people were saying, like, have they always been saying stuff like that? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. I would say so. I just, there, there wasn't as many Amy Bird's, you know, becoming, uh, well-known and writing these books that people were reading. I, I think that's the change. I, I don't really think that that a movement has built particularly against that idea. I think it's the same thing that's happened with, uh, you know, racism and racial issues recently too. They didn't come to these ideas now. They just had them questioned. So now it's time to double down and really push back. Um, and it plays out differently. I mean, you said you, you're, your knowledge probably more SBC connected than 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 in the Presbyterian. So I think it and, plays and, and distinct and and distinctly non-reformed. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, subsets of the SBC. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so that that's probably a little more normal too there. <laughs> the, right. <laughs> but right. I think something that happens, I think, like with the SBC, is the SBC is huge, right? So all over the country, um, and pretty well decentralized, right? Um, so there, there's not like uh, a court system necessarily like there is in Presbyterianism or a hierarchy, um, authoritarian hierarchy. And, and then there's also not like very clear confessions or creeds that everyone agrees to. So I think what happens in the SBC is, is that to, to really like try to move the convention one way or the other, you have to play politics. You have to be really loud. You have to form groups that aren't actually church groups, you know, they're parachurch groups. And you have to exert a lot of political power, a lot of money, a lot of force, a lot of propaganda in order to kind of move the convention in one direction or another. So in Presbyterianism, it happens a lot differently. Um, there is some of that, but but there, there aren't as many like voices that are seeking that attention if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Because it doesn't, it's not gonna, I mean, you can get like a following, but you're still subject to your local church who is a group of presbyters who are subject to um, the consistory in, in my case, I don't know what they call it now. Um, I'm learning Presbyterianism from the other reformed tradition that I'm in. So, um, and then eventually, you know, you have synod and then synodical decisions, they, they are authoritative all the way down through the denomination. So you can appeal, but that process is way different than, than just saying, I'm gonna form an organization, the founders ministry, and we're gonna write a lot of papers and we're gonna collect a lot of money and we're gonna be really bullheaded online and we're gonna create the bad people and show you who the good people are and, you know, have a culture war. Not, not as present, I would say within traditionally reformed churches. It doesn't mean that the ideas, if they're good or bad or destructive, otherwise aren't present. Um, it just plays out publicly, I think, a lot differently. So I'd say 
probably a lot of people who have critiques about the Reformed Church have it more, um, and I'm talking actual Reformed Church, because there's the SBC type Reformed is, you know, notoriously loud and obnoxious. Um, right. um, but traditional, confessional Reformed and Presbyterian churches, it's not playing out as much on the internet, you know, right. just because I don't, like I said before, I don't think there's as much to gain from politicking in that way. It does kind of come down to a more local authoritarian structure as opposed to just changing the public will. And the churches are smaller and they don't have a lot of power generally as it is. Um, but I think that the complaints are pretty similar. Um, I think anywhere where you come into a more uh, conservative tradition of Christianity, it's gonna be there. Um, so one of the things that, I, that I've learned about myself over time is that there is sort of bound up with it a very specific uh, American social philosophy that was invisible to me and I think is invisible to a lot of people that just sounds like oh, that's being Christian or that's being biblical or, you know, and, and you don't see that. No, it's an historical ideology that was developed. It doesn't exist even in other places where reformed churches exist now, definitely didn't exist in the past, different than it was even in Europe, different than Christian traditions, you know, all over the world, all throughout history, that there is a social philosophy that is woven into, I would say, the, the perception of theological understanding within reformed churches in general, that just seems normal, natural, common sense, biblical. Right. So and I think that that is a pretty safe and insular community when when you think that way. And this might I don't even know if you're interested in this, but <laughs> no, I am. Are you speaking of like individualism and that kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, individualism, uh, specific understanding about, you know, what constitutes racism, you know, understanding right. race and, and, and understanding in history, obviously, uh, ideals about masculinity, femininity. Um, yeah, definitely individualism or how the individual, re, you know, relates to power or, or what the meaning of uh, freedom and equal rights, all of those things, you know, the very Western liberal tradition is right. um, stitched and woven tightly into that which is considered Christian in most conservative, you know, Christian denominations. Gotcha. And, and then I think this is buttressed also by the fact that I, I know it's different in the South with the PCA, so I can't really speak to that. But I know in California, there's like, um, because there's not like a lot of reformed churches and definitely not like, I mean, there's huge reformed PCA churches in the South, I've heard. I've never never been there, but um, into any of the churches. But here it's kind of like, you have like a conservative reformed or a Presbyterian church, you know, few and far between here and none of them are very big. So all of them are, are sort of uh, attracting people from a wide area based upon what they're already believing and already selling, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's like, I believe in predestination and, you know, um, I like Calvin, whatever. I, I'm not trying to downplay the thoughts that go into it. I'm just trying to <laughs> 
point point out some of the things. So and you're going to go to the local church in California, and they're not going to believe that, you know, and you're going to go to a few others. Then you're going to find out, oh, in another town here nearby, there's a church that, you know, it's paedo-baptist, and they believe in predestination, and and they they believe the creeds, and so there's the package, and you travel there, right? So that, so I would say in our area, at least, most Reformed churches aren't aren't exactly like a community church whose thoughts are about how do we serve our community in all of its diversity and um, whether that be uh, racially diverse or economic, you know, class, everything. Um, it's more, here's the product that we're selling and people come from wherever to come and consume that, that product. So I think then that in a sense further insulates that uh, social philosophy from exposure to other Christian understandings of social philosophy. And, and I think that more and more today, internet, obviously, Twitter, you know, that the world changing more and more and more, obviously also a lot more women and a lot more African-Americans and, and, and Latinx people coming into the seminaries and kind of into that reform world is, is causing those perceptions to be questioned um, at a much greater rate. So I think probably a lot of what's causing things to pop like with Amy Bird is that it, they, they feel like it's threatened at this point. And it's not, it's not a contingent historical philosophical system that they feel is threatened, but rather their understanding of Christianity itself. Right. And, Which they can't, they can't distinguish. Yes. So then you go to war, right? I mean, because it's, you're tearing down the faith. Right. Not. So, so why that, so this, yeah, good. We're, so this is why I want to, I, I kind of want to, I, I want to know sort of what makes you tick. Right. Uh, so, so, so why, why do you think you're drawn to um, like a PCA church where, well, I'm not, of course, we're not speaking of your particular PCA church, but why do you think you're drawn to that uh, tradition? Uh, like, and it could be PCA, it could be the, the denomination that you just uh, left. Like, what, what attracts you to a church where this subculture is prevalent, where you've got to contend with these kinds of dynamics? Because uh, I, I, I find myself in the same position. And yeah. I find myself wondering, like, why don't I just go, <laughs> just go to this other right, right. church over here where, like, we agree on, you know, a, a bunch of this stuff. I mean, of course, then we would agree about other things. But, yeah, I mean, what, why do you, uh, yeah, what, what, what keeps you uh, coming back? I think mainly, um, you know, doctrinal issues. I, I still, I think that, that the doctrines that I hold to, I believe, are biblical, historical, imperfect and incomplete, obviously. I'm, I'm never gonna say beyond that. Um, I couldn't become Baptist. I don't wanna, no offense to Baptists, but I, I can't put that together in my mind. Um, so then that kind of narrows it. Um, I don't, I, it's just specific doctrinal issues and they may even, change to some degree I, I don't know it's a difficult one for me so but, but I, I mean, those I doctrines have, oh go ahead go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say i mean i have tensions like you say pulling in you know totally 
different directions at all times uh, because I do want to be part of a historical church. I, I do want to be, you know, a church that confesses the creeds, historic creeds, you know. So, um, but then, I, then also, I don't want to go all the way into a very modern church, very low church setting. I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm saying I don't really know precisely everything yet <laughs> yeah so you've got you've got um i guess that one of the things i'm wrestling with is if the doctrines that keep us coming back were really worth it would you find them uh so often coexisting with these other dynamics that are so toxic um, so I've thought about this and I have, I have multiple opinions and I think that some of it might be our own historic setting within America. I think that if we were having this discussion in uh, other uh, nations with colonial history, maybe in Brazil or Central America or maybe African coast, um, I think we'd be talking about a different religion and having this discussion, not a different religion, but a different denomination, a different Christian tradition, having this very, very similar conversation. I think it, it happens to be that the many of the separatists who came from Europe, I mean, came from England, that there was a lot of uh, Protestant that came here originally in the, in the colonial era, era, um, and so I think there was sort of a fusing, obviously, of the uh, social doctrine that was being employed when committing genocide and then racial slavery and then structuring a society based upon human hierarchy that was also wedded to the sort of uh, Calvinistic Protestantism that was the religion of the people's who were doing that and first coming here. Whereas that wasn't necessarily the case in Brazil or in other Catholic nations, they were doing the same thing. They came with the same agenda. They committed the same genocide. They created the same human hierarchies. And then they used their expression of Christianity to justify that. So I think kind of it's an American discussion for us to see why do these traditional Calvinistic reformed Protestant uh, denominations seem so connected with, um, you know, the idea of racial hierarchy, misogyny, a lot of these other things. And I think it's because they, that this particular American version was built along with those uh, social ideologies as well, that, that I don't think is necessarily present. I mean, it wasn't a, uh, it certainly wasn't Calvinism that, that, you know, led the Portuguese to recreate Brazil, for example, um, the French in Haiti or, you know, any other number of places. I think that it's our peculiar story and it is connected in that way. The question is, is it separable? Um, can it, you know, be distinguished? Is it, is it beyond that kind of hope to, uh, to ferret out what, what is and isn't? And I think it's a possibility, but I only think it's a possibility because generally of people of color who have taken up the reformed faith and, and sort of, reinterpreted it 
in a way that, that it hasn't been understood for a long time does make me see that it can make sense. Faith, philosophy, and politics family. How y'all doing, man? I'm Trey. I'm Sam. And I'm Rob. And we're the co-host of the Three Black Men podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Got a lot of love for Scott. Probably heard me on here a few times. But I think we have some things for you over here. So you can listen to us wherever you get your podcast. Spotify. Apple. All of them, thanks. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) We in there. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Critical race theory is is very much you know in the in the headlines these days. I mean, like in broader culture, obviously not 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 just in um, you know uh, evangelical subcultures. Although um, everywhere everyone knows the phrase now. It's right, right, right. Yeah, but you start you started studying it uh, before it became this uh, you know big before all of this momentum developed around it, even in evangelical subculture, which I think preceded um, at least, you know, seeing articles in the New York Times or whatever about it, right? right. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so what drew you to, it, it wasn't the publicity, so what drew you to, uh, to yeah. think about these things? Well, originally, I mean, I had started writing as I was starting to understand about um, racism in American history, kind of thoroughly understanding slavery, what actually occurred, and even studying um, Africa prior to slavery, um, you know, uh, Atlantic slave trade, and kind of building a general historical understanding of what's going on, which of course rapidly makes sense of the world we live in now, um, starts to put those pieces together. So quickly built momentum to where I think I was getting a grasp of, of, you know, what racism actually is, how I'm actually seeing it in my own society, how I see it in my own ideas that I've had, you know, as I was president of the Young Republicans in high school, if you were wondering. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I've been uh, deeply- I was a, li- I was a libertarian well. in-, in uh, Oh, you were a libertarian? I'd say by the time I graduated high school and through college, I was a libertarian. Yeah, yeah I became libertarian. That's my big confession. Well, I was, uh, I was uh, president of the Young Republicans and then I became a very poor president because I became libertarian and was against the Republicans. So it didn't work <laughs> out. Yeah. And over time, of course, I abandoned all of that. And so I had studied philosophy in college. So, you know, I had some understanding of like Habermas and I knew connections to Marcuse and, you know, some, some of those historical connections to critical theory. I more thought of critical theory as, um, you know, connected with literary theory for whatever reason, um, probably because my philosophical education was so analytic that that was all just a big mess over there anyhow that I wasn't. Yep. Did, you, you did, whether you encounter these ideas in a literature department or in a philosophy department depends largely on which school you attend. Right. <laughs> that, that's yeah, basically that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah. Some, some, at some schools you'll find it in both. Or, you know, or, or you'll find both in the philosophy department, but yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I never really caught it there, except for particularly Habermas, just because, you know, philosophy of language and 
things like that probably is where the overlap was. So I had some understanding of uh, critical theory, broadly speaking, but that was kind of just in parallel with my understand, beginning to learn about uh, race and racism and mostly studying history. Um, and then of course, began to hear, you know, come across the phrase critical race theory. Um, but I did assume for quite a while, it was just in some sense, critical theory applied to the question of race, which I know it's, you know, that's a like awful way to understand it. But I did understand it that way for, for uh, quite a bit. And then probably when, I mean, I took a lot of heat just for writing on, on racism in general, um, lost a fair amount of friends, got pushed out of certain circles pretty quickly, even places where I had articles up before or no longer present, scrubbed, things like that. Um, so I knew there was quite a backlash, but I would say that probably when I started to dig most deep is when early on people started to mention, oh, well, critical race theory is at the root and it's really awful. And in my mind, it's like, I know, I, I know what anti-racism is, I think, um, to some degree. I know what critical theory is. So I thought I knew in general where those connected. Um, but I wanted to actually understand it a lot more. So started started reading sort of the more canonical uh, critical race theory text to try and put it together. And of course, then it became clear to me that, you know, while there is a sense of critical included in critical race theory, it wasn't just Frankfurt with race added in. It was um, right. a different tradition altogether. Well, yeah. and you and you could see there are still folks. Um, writing uh and i mean speak the whole the whole sort of um anti-critical race theory industrial complex that has developed in uh white evangelical subculture mm -hmm. over the last like two or three years i mean it appeared as if uh from nowhere right, right. and yeah. uh, and and that's actually the impression you would get from that from that whole uh set of people who now, I mean, fantastically to me, are like publishing books, Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. with, uh, sure, I mean, you know, if you look at, if you look at the, the imprint that they're publishing with, it's like, oh, okay, now, now I see right. how this happened. Uh, yeah. But, but um, that's exactly the idea you would get, right? That, that, that there's a straight line from the Frankfurt School to, you know, um, Derek Bell or something like that. And okay. it's like, uh, a what? Yeah. a bunch of neo-Marxists, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because the, I, and I, I think, yeah, I want to get your thoughts on. Um, well, I on, think a lot of that. Sorry. Oh no, no, I want to get your thoughts on some of the tactics, but, but the affixing uh, the label of Marxism to uh, any kind of movement around civil civil rights or legal reform that that is like the oldest trick in the book. I mean, that oh, that is. They keep going back to that well, decade after yeah. decade. Yeah, 19th century. Yeah. You know, it's been around since, I mean, that's Thornwell even. Yeah. Calling his opposition communists, <laughs> you yeah. know? And that's, <laughs> that's like just after the Civil War. So, oh, but I was, I was gonna point out that I think a lot of what I noticed early on when the, criti the criticisms were 
developing is, you know, obviously the common one was like, oh, it's Marxist because it sees the world as oppressor and oppressed, right? So you heard that like a thousand times probably two years ago, right? Um, and I don't think you hear it as much now because each one of the tactics seem to kind of fade and morph into something different. But that was like major at the start, just that claim. Of course, the whole world came out and said, you're talking about a, you know, a dialectic that's been around for, you know, centuries, like right. in the Bible, it's, you know, that, there was nothing particularly interesting about that. Um, and Marx was distinct in his approach to answering the question, not the creator of the question. But, um, right. but I think one of the problems is, is a lot of the people and, and I'll, you know, even the people who are most popular to this day for being the anti-CRT crowd, had no working understanding of the abolition tradition, abolitionist tradition or the civil rights tradition. They, they hadn't read uh, the radical civil rights tradition. They, they, there was no foundation for coming to critical race theory. And, and the things that they would point out like as awful were like so old, you know, 100 years prior to CRT. So that was like kind of the first First thing I noticed when I first started um, interacting with the anti-critical race theory crowd is that to me, they were attacking uh, much of the civil rights movement, not even critical race theory. Like what's distinctive about critical race theory was not even being touched in their critiques. What they were critiquing in my mind was probably a lot of Frederick Douglass. They were critiquing Du Bois. They were uh, critiquing uh, Oliver Cromwell Cox, they were critiquing Dr. King himself, they were critiquing the black power, black nationalist movements, but they didn't know any of those things. And all of that language scared them and those ideas scared them as subversive and new, right? It was new because it wasn't, it wasn't their understanding, their social philosophy, so it was new, it just got made up, it's a new definition of racism, but they just had no idea of the history, you know, long prior to critical race theory. And so, so much of, even to this day, what you see as like, oh, they think it's all just about power. Well, I learned that from Dr. King, not from Kimberly Crenshaw 30 years later. You know, I, I just don't think they, they still don't seem to have bothered to go back and learn that tradition before leveling these critiques. And so I think that to me, I thought that would deflate the anti-CRT movement pretty quick. But it was clear that they didn't know what they were talking about. They couldn't define it. And almost all their attacks were on just traditional civil rights. They just didn't know what it was. They knew what the sort of white mythical repackaging of the civil rights movement was and what it meant. They knew that, but they didn't know what it actually was. They hadn't actually read them. So things there, um, if someone were to say right now that, well, race was created and a racial hierarchy was created to justify the exploitation of groups of laborers, right? That's like, oh, that's Marxist, that's scandalous. No, that's like David Walker, 1830. You know, that's yeah. been the understanding. Just because you first now heard it doesn't mean it got made up last week and it's something subversive. It's what's happening is your own understanding, your own uh, white Western social philosophy is now coming in contact with a long history of black civil rights and black radicalism. And it's jarring and it doesn't make sense and it seems new and it seems like it's gonna you know, destroy civilization. 
And it, it would destroy some type of civilization. And that's what it was intended to for about 200 years now. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah this idea of oppressor and, and a, the relationships between oppressor and oppressed and so on um, is not, and building a system around thinking of things in those terms is not original to Marx, right? No. Um, Mark, Marx um, describes that kind of vantage point in the conditions of modern uh, industrialization, right? Yeah, I think he's trying to answer and, um, What's that? I think he's trying to answer what's why. That? Right, well, okay, so there's there are two Marxists, right? There's the Marx as like uh, economic, um, you know, diagnostician, right? Where he's looking at the system and uh, kind of analyzing it and okay, how's a profit created, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot, a lot, not all, right? But a lot of what he says there isn't terribly controversial. I mean, like he's got ideas about um, how to understand value, right? And, and that are, um, controversial or debunked by now what, what, what what'd you say i said but yeah but like a labor theory of value just comes from adam smith it wasn't yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Time, yeah. Even. The guy, yeah the guy who's everybody's like oh the invisible hand market adam smith you know blah 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 and it's like um yeah i mean like there's not a lot of daylight there between marx and adam smith in terms of the you know uh, diagnostic now the other marx right there's another marx the other marx is like and now here's what we should do about it right that Marx is kind of crazy, yeah? <laughs> That's the bad Marx, you know, like we should just, right. you know, do away with all, uh, 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 yeah, so, so we, we can, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the features of, that they pick out as Marxist are not actually uh, sort of distinctive to Marx and they're not especially problematic. You might think they're problematic, but um, it's not well, for any of the reasons they claim they are, right? And then the contributions that Marx made that that have endured in in sociology are very important and very helpful and very useful and don't make you a communist or get you anywhere near communism, right? So um, when 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 you read in a sociology text or in uh, CRT surprisingly talks about Marx and Marxism so little that it's hard to track anything down. Um, but uh, CLS probably had a lot more discussion with Marxism, um, especially uh, Duncan Kennedy and I don't know. It, and for them, it's hard to tell are they Marxists or not because they're, there's, there's so much of the, uh, what did Tushnet call it? The metaphor of Marxism. So, so he talks about, uh, obviously he's critical legal studies, not critical race theory, but he um, was very helpful to beginning CRT in many ways, but he talks about how, okay, well, let's look at Marxism, right? And then he goes through and he disproves uh, Marx's instrumental view of law, right? Pretty, pretty concretely. Uh, destroys uh, the idea of a, a base superstructure, right? So that's based for anyone listening. Basic Marxism is the idea that you have a, like a, a bottom level is the base and that's like the material, of, of uh, production, which uh, create a sort of mode of production. So it's like what available for the productive activity based upon what had come before in history. And then that determines what the mode of production is. How do we go about producing goods and services, right? 
So that's sort of the base. And then the superstructure or the ideological system is produced from that. So, so our, you know, classically something like mathematics didn't go through a revolution in the 16th and 17th century because everyone had epiphanies about how to do algebra or something. It's because the calculations needed for production drove that, right? So that's how Marx is gonna respond to that. Or the, the, the reformation, right? Changes in the church um, and theology. So basically all of those things, uh, art, uh, religion, government, um, mathematics, science, the scientific revolution, all of those things are driven by the base, right? So how, 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 what stuff do we have and how is it made? That's a basic existential human question, right? So you, when you, if you just popped onto the earth, let's say you wouldn't think like, um, now what is my favorite type of art or, or how, how do I, uh, what do I believe about, he would say God, obviously I would say that was a central question because of the way we're made, but he would say, nobody's thinking that. The first question is, is like, I gotta like stay somewhere safe and I need food and right. And then I need to propagate my kind or whatever. Um, so so that the, the base is answering those questions. And then the superstructure is all the ideas that flow out of that, that we think are independent. We reify them as like their own institutions and their own ideas. And we even think that they're determining the base, but it's really the other way around. So if we want to understand how history's chugging along and why there's conflict and why there's oppressors and why there's oppressed and, and why this institution even exists is the way it does, then we need to look to the modes of protection and the, the internal dynamics and the contradictions within that are what's producing the ideological system, right? So what was so interesting about that is not that there was a base and it's going back to Tushnet, is that you can disprove the base superstructure because he does it with law that, that, well, there are no modes of economic production without a legal system defining property, whatever, you know, you can't, you can't put one over under the other, they're too mutual. And so he's walking through Marx and kind of breaking them down piece by piece. But at the end he realizes that there is a metaphor there that's supremely useful that can be applied in, in a lot of different ways. And I think that's kind of how, Marx has come to us in a useful sense is that we can look at something and we could say, there's a problem here. And then you see the actors and you can ask, ask the people who are involved in the problem, like, well, why are you doing this? And why are you doing this? Well, because I believe this and, and I hate this or whatever, whatever. But have you answered the question if you've just done that level of research? Or are there not things that, that have led them to think that way? that are beyond even their own knowledge, right? Are there circumstances that they're responding to? Are, are, are there brass tacks, basic level needs that human ha humans have that, that lead them to have these beliefs and, and have these social conflicts and these social relationships? Can there be something underneath, right? And so that's the, that's the, the, the idea of criticism or the critical Marxism that's lived on in these traditions. That doesn't mean you believe in a labor theory of law. It doesn't mean that you believe in the base superstructure paradigm. It doesn't mean that you, that you believe in, in, they absolutely reject any form of instrumentalism, which is the idea that, that law is just a servant of the bourgeoisie, right? That's basic Marxism. And Marxists will kill you over rejecting that in many places, <laughs> right? right? I mean, central, not necessarily kill you. I was just exaggerating, but, um, 
Uh, well, there have been periods in different places. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, right. I've heard people that pop into my mind who are nice people who call themselves Marxists, and I don't want to imply that they, they're murderous. But <laughs> right, 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 right. But um, um, and then same with instrumentalism and race. You know, you can't say law is just a, a, a servant of racial interests or or anything of like that. That whole Marxist way of doing it is rejected. But we do have that core of that critical stance of of looking at broad social circumstances and being able to think about it in a non-surface way, right? To understand that there, there are may, maybe more basic things going on, maybe more economic things going on. Maybe, maybe there's a historicism, uh, a history that's at the base of it that, that is creating this world of ideas and symbols that make us think about certain things and different people, different ways. And, and that we're not really doing any analysis until we've kind of gotten down to that level. Um, and, and that's why sociology, you know, it's Marx, it's Durkheim and it's Weber, right? Yep. And it's not because sociologists are all communists or one third communists, right? Um, and so I think that in general, what I've seen is that sociology itself then becomes a basis of criticism. Like a, a lot of conservative evangelicalism uh, will see sociology happening before their eyes, meaning the, the actual academic field, and it sounds and smells and looks Marxist to them, right? And I think right. what they're keying onto is just that idea that there are other drivers of, for behavior than just the explicit stated reasons and thoughts in my mind and my belief system, that there's also something behind that. I mean, and to me, this just seems like, I don't know, people love Neil Postman, right? Amusing ourselves to death and all of that. I think he's basically saying the same same thing throughout that. Um, uh, consumerism in general, I think, you know, only makes sense if you understand like how commodification works and how, how you can see how things play on people's, you know, basic desires and interests. And um, I think you can understand markets a lot better if you do understand the idea of treating humans as saleable objects, even though they're being paid wages, right? The, uh, cogs in the machine, right? And, and devaluation of life can result from that, even though no one in the process says we devalue life, right? So I think there's a lot of understanding that has come out of that approach, approach to answering the question of oppressor and oppressed. It didn't create that question, but it is a, a, a much more in-depth way to go about answering it. And that's what's stuck. And I think that's what um, sort of gives a leverage for calling everything Marxist that is in a sense sociological or that's uh, critiquing or that has maybe a little more uh, radical approach to understanding things rather than just surface level. And not to go on too long, but I, but I also think that there's should be an amelioration in that too. You know, when I, when I hear of something like, um, like uh, systemic racism or you know, I would call it something like um, preserving or perpetuating subordinated circumstances of people groups, right? Even if we don't want to call it racism, systemic racism, but there's definitely, you know, we're involved in perpetuating subordination, okay? So call it whatever you want, but, um, and, but I think there should be an amelioration in looking at it that way because I, the, the other alternative is that white people just hate black people, right? across the board, like consciously in our minds. And that's why the circumstance exists. And so since they won't 
see things in a critical perspective, right? To where you can see how we're behaving that way, maybe without actually like being committed to that proposition or even believing that way, since they can't have that, then it's gotta be either one or the other. Really bad intentions and hatred or good intentions and love all around and who knows why things are going wrong. Or it's well, and there's another fault that something's going wrong, right? Do what? Or, or you have to say, well, then it must be people of color's own fault that they right. are, you know, suffering, or or that the, there's a wealth problem, or there's an income problem, or there's a life expectancy problem, or there's a police shooting problem, or you know, there's uh, uh, healthcare issues, right? Because because you you can't you won't allow yourself to think about it like a Marxist. Yeah. So it's either going to be a bunch of explicit haters or or it's their fault. Right. Or you just don't know anything about statistics, like absolutely nothing. And so you don't you don't see that an explanation is actually required. Right. 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 Because yeah. you, it's like, oh, a disproportionate percentage of uh, folks who is, uh, you know, a description of them in their life, you know, uh, fits uh, this criterion, right? Namely, um, they're of a certain race, right? A disproportionate percentage of folks that are of this certain race face uh, certain forms of adversity, mm -hmm. right? But I don't know anything about statistics, so I don't know what disproportionate means, and I don't understand that that, you know, I need to explain that. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's-, that's And then, so it, and on your point, it constantly uh, descends into an individualism, like, not even consciously or intentionally it's 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 okay why is this group what different what's why is there a disparity between this group and this group and these groups are defined by socially created ideas right or social construction so what's different about this group as a whole to this group as a whole and immediately they go to well i know if i act this way then bad things will happen. And if I act this way, good things will happen. So now they, they immediately go to the individual explanation. So then that's what must be what's happening with this group, right? Because they're not thinking in terms of groups or, or like you said, in terms of statistics, right? So the only explanations they have are like specific individual behaviors that they know lead to positive or negative results. And that's the only way they can conceive of it. And it, and it happens with very intelligent people like all the time it's like well you can't say you know that uh it's primarily racism involved because people need to take responsibility for their actions and it's like that's a category mistake you just like you know what i mean that's not what we're talking about at all like yeah i think that ties into to what you're saying as well and, and just understanding statistics in general but i really think that the Going back, there, there is something weird to my mind to where I can say, okay, all right, so one group has 10 to 17 times the wealth of another group, right? And then we know our history. So that, to me, that's like, okay, conversation's near over already, but obviously it's not. And so you see that disparity and then you see our history and then you say, so something like racism must be involved, right? And now, one person's gonna hear, okay, so that means I, that all white people have individual prejudice and hatred in their heart towards people of color, right? Well, I don't believe that's true. So the alternative is, is the disparity is their fault, right? Right. Okay, so, but if you, gotta, if you could be, you know, a terrible little critical Marxist and allow those radical ideas to seep into your mind, 
just for a minute, there is an there is some amelioration there that no, 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 no. Maybe, you know, that we're not intending to be prejudiced. Maybe it's not individual conscious hatred, right? That is leading to the circumstance. That doesn't mean there isn't racism involved, racist ideas involved. Doesn't mean that there um, isn't uh, active preservation of systems that continue to subordinate. But, but it, I think it does allow people to begin uh, to think about it in a way where it's not just being intentionally hate, hateful, which, which is kind of not an option on, the, on just individual liberalism without any like critical method. I don't, what, I don't, I mean, on one level, I do understand it uh, because I mean, there, there are, um, you know, the folks who are resistant to um, social reforms and resistant to um, the ideas of folks who point out that, you know, racism is, is still a problem. Um, the, the, the folks in that crowd that's resistant, you know, they have, they have bills to pay and they have uh, constituencies to satisfy. So I understand it on that level, but uh, on the level of, you know, exchanging ideas, I find it really difficult to comprehend their difficulty in understanding that like, there are different senses of the word racism at work here. Right. My dude, like we can call it racism prime if you want. We can call it racism asterisk. We could call it something completely, just pick a different word, right? right. Yeah. Uh, uh, but like, how do you not get that? Like, I'm not accusing you of being a racist because I say that there are racist institutions right. in our, or, 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 or that racism has become institutionalized in various ways, right? Yeah. Like, where's the disconnect there, my man? Like, how, how are we, yeah. how can we not get past this basic misunderstanding? Because my, my first year college students don't have any difficulty understanding this uh, after about 10 minutes. Yeah. So why have we been having this conversation for a few years and you still don't seem to get it? What, what's going on? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's built in. Like I was saying before, the uh, post-civil rights movement, the sort of, uh, the reconstruction of the ideas of the civil rights movement by white progressives into sort of just an integrationist system of, you know, racism is personal prejudice the, that manifests itself in discrimination, which means taking race into account when making decisions. Right. And, and the social problem is segregation. So that is integration, right? So the sort of that pattern, it takes, the radical you know, edge of the civil rights movement and completely obliterate it by repackaging it in just Western white liberalism, right? And then that's the norm. So then that's how we understand racism. That's how especially our parents understand racism. Like we've been through it and we learned this is the right way to handle it, right? Um, and so that's what racism is. So whenever you hear the term, that's the analytic, that's the complex that arises in, in your mind. Okay, racism is personal prejudice, manifests itself in seeing race or allowing race to count in for anything, that's discrimination, which leads to people living separately, which is segregation, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've now integrated and I don't allow race to count for anything, therefore I'm, I'm not racist and there's no prejudice, right? Mm -hmm. But that's new. You know, that's not how the tradition wrote about it. We talked right. about institutional racism. We understood yes. how it affected systems and, 
and, and you know, in the civil rights movement, the, the even you know, Dr. King was even quite clear on on how those systems work together. And so, like you're saying, then in in that light and within that analytic, we can't think of it like um, sort of a a circumstance or a situation that's distributed throughout society that perpetuates those disadvantages. So we can't think of it really in that way. And that might be Marxist anyhow, right? So you can't. Um, and then we also don't consider the ideas that they're, they're, you may not be a racist quote unquote, but you do have a lot of racist ideas. I have racist. I think we all do. I mean, that's, that's, we're, we're within a culture that, uh, Things are, have been structured that way. It's been fed to us, media, church, and so many different ways. And, and I would say in many ways, the, the part of sanctification is, is becoming aware of those ideas that you have, that how you respond to certain circumstances. Or you know, when, you see, uh, when you see someone get killed on TV and you see every African-American you know is like, oh, that's disgusting, racist act. And then your first thought is, well, let me decide if that's racist or not, right? In your mind. I think that's because, you know, you've got some ideas in there that, that aren't making this land all the way. Some, some devaluation, some, some, uh, some lack of context, some lack of historicism in the way you think about events, right? And I think those are literally part of how individuals contribute to systemic racism, right? In, in those simple ways. But as long as you just have that limp, the white liberal integrationist paradigm as the, the only way you can understand racism. And then as you've seen, anyone who suggests a more historic way or, or mentions critical theory, it's, it's just, well, that's a new definition. You made up a new definition of racism, which is just absolutely false. You know, the right. definition has not changed, right? Right. It's just that, that white liberal integrationist definition is sort of the repackaged, we can get along now, you know, it's all over version of, of the topic. And, and they also think that um, thinking in terms of applying morality to systems and institutions, they also think that that's somehow new. And it's like, sorry, man, like, can you like oh, go back and read the Hebrew Bible? Yeah. You know? right. right. There's nothing new about, um, uh, uh, the, thinking through the, the morality of institutional arrangements, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and then I think you probably also saw that there was a recent uh, supposed takedown of the idea of like collective guilt, right? Hmm. Um, I don't know, an article written, I won't mention you, but, and they're writing like, we're not guilty for the sins of people past, right? Yeah. They go through the Bible and they make all these arguments. And it's so weird that they even spent all that time because I don't know who thinks that. Right, Nobody that's a huge, that's a huge. Guilty for a, a person in the past's action. Nobody mm -hmm. believes that. Nobody's yep. arguing that. Like why even spend all the time writing a paper on that? I, I don't even, doesn't, nobody believes that. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to, to, to think that people are arguing in good faith when they argue that way right because it's almost um it's like it's like there's this um intentional conflation of of the on the one hand the idea that white people by virtue of their membership in a you know this socially constructed group called white people 
uh, are somehow guilty for stuff that was done decades before we were born, right? On the one hand. And then on yeah. the other hand, like uh, the idea that white people by virtue of their membership in this socially constructed group called white people um, have benefited from certain uh, cultural norms and uh, institutions in ways that are unjust. And some effort at, um, some effort at um, uh, restitution is in order, right? Those are completely separate things, like being guilty of something versus owing a debt. Like when I get, when I get my cable bill in the mail, I don't say, well, wait a second, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. No, it's the, that's just not the kind of thing that it is. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about, man? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good way to put it, definitely. Yeah, um, and I feel the same way. So there is, there is social responsibility, um, but that's, that's far away from guilt. And then I, I like to, I, well, I like and don't like, I like that passage from um, White Fragility by D'Angelo. I hate bringing it up because then people think I'm defending her or, or you know, considering her a, a representative of critical race theory or anything like that. But well, I don't it's, a, it's, a, it's a radical notion, Bradley, that you could be fond of like one thing that someone said without yeah. just like full on buying into their, the, you know, their whole body of work. Yeah, but right. but that that is the case, folks. You can't you can do that. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, I just like to post because you know they love to put her up as like the worst of the worst of the worst. But then she <laughs> writes in there a couple paragraphs. Like people ask me all the time about, well, guilty? Are you feel guilty? Are you doing? Is this white guilt? She's like, no, I I don't feel guilty. Like why would I feel guilty about something I didn't personally create? something that I was socialized into. I didn't choose to be taught this way. I didn't choose to absorb these ideas from my environment. Um, and she says, quite, quite the opposite. Like I find pleasure and joy in discovering the ways in which I've been socialized into this so that I can change. And when I should feel guilty is when I decide not to do anything about it or to not care. That's right. right? Yeah. And I don't know how you can disagree with that. Right, yeah. Yeah, and so that so this is this was something I wanted to um, touch on, right? Um, what uh, you mentioned change, right? Like identifying these things and uncovering them, and then and then trying to change them, um, right. and the and the notion that um, you know you're complicit in them in a way that's morally blameworthy, uh, only to the extent that you fail to try to change these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, so one one way in which, and I, you know, I'm not interested in, in tracing uh, the genealogy of this necessarily, but um, one way that uh, critical race theory does sort of resemble critical theory proper is in the way that it brings together, on the one hand, empirical analysis, right? So insights from social science, it mm -hmm. brings those together with a kind of normative analysis that says, okay, here, now here's what we should do about it. Right. right. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, that was one of the principal aspirations of uh, the Frankfurt school. Um, right. Right. Uh, and, and I, I say that to say this, um, one of the big, I think completely bankrupt complaints about uh, critical race theory, critical theory, uh, and this this is another sort of common trope with whatever whatever white evangelicals don't like, right? This is what they say about it: like 
It's right. uh, relativistic. They believe that there's no truth, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you, so you in defending the established order at any cost, right? You are actually the nihilist. You are actually the positivist, right? right. Um, right. Because your only standard for right and wrong is just the way things are or worse. I don't know, be better or worse. I guess it depends on the way things are, but uh, potentially worse. Uh, the fact that you would prefer for things to to be, you know, some other way, like that you've seen in history or something like yeah, that. Okay. That's yeah. your only standard, right? right? So say what you will about critical race theorists or whatever their standards are, but at least they have standards, right? right. And at yeah. least they're pursuing some kind of normative project apart right. from uh, just trying to reinforce the established order. Right. Just, yeah. just because, just because it's the established order, right? Right. Yeah. And and this gets, I think this this gets to the um, another sort of central uh, disagreement uh, between, on the one hand, the kind of authoritarian uh, personality types, and then on the other hand, the people who are making claims about uh, how things should be uh, with respect to some kind of moral order. You've got on the one hand people who say. Uh, nope, this is what the law is, this is what the people in power say, and this is how it's going to be, right? right. Uh, and anyone who tries to question that uh, just doesn't believe that there's any such thing as moral truth. And it's like, no, no, no. Um, actually, moral truth is the very thing that leads me to question your position right? Um, and whether things should be the way that they are, right? right? And so there's actually a huge tension between, on the one hand, people who are always appealing to authority and submission, and then on the other hand, uh, and, and they might talk about moral order, but what they really mean is this social hierarchy, right? right. Um, yeah. So you got those folks on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you've got people who actually believe that there's a moral order. Uh, right. Disagree with them all you like about what the moral order is, but they've got that right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And now, I, I think see them saying like, "Oh, well, they did," you know. Um, they're, they've got their uh, standpoint epistemology. They deny their subjective truth. I'm like, you don't even know what standpoint epistemology is. No, <laughs> so they... just, just get that out of your mouth. You don't even know what you're talking about. Exactly. Um, but no, of course they don't deny their subjective truth, right? I mean, the, the, right. The, the whole point is that they're trying to figure out what the truth is and what we and the truth about what we should do about. It. Yeah, they're not spending 90 pages in a law review article arguing that there is no truth or that nothing they're saying is true or that nothing they're saying is provable or that nothing they're saying has evidence or, you know, I just think people haven't even read any of those articles. No. Honestly, no. I, you couldn't read those articles and come away with that. And then, and then once again, they'll, well, but D'Angelo, you know, if they'll go to whoever they think is a soft target in that. And what's stunning to me is there's not even a soft target there. She's very clear there's objective reality, there's truth, but you and I aren't objective. And the way we've been socialized affects, you know, how we perceive things and what things we believe are true. That's the problem. So in a sense, the, the deconstruction involved in that is, is working towards truth, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole point. Of it. Not to take truth and just obliterate it. It's because we think there is some truth. There's truth there to be found. And... And I think that, yeah, like you're saying, if you take the, the completed uh, project of knowledge or the completed knowledge project, and we make that all fixed, and those are the world of truths. And then when you question them, 
well, now you're probably a relativist or denying truth. And then worse is if you even like go a layer below just the common propositions to ask even more deep philosophical questions. Now you're in like very deep water, obviously don't believe there is an objective order or an objective uh, world or truth or anything like that. Just because you've decided to not take the, the current body of knowledge at face value. I right. think that's pretty much what you were saying. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I find it, I find it um, uh, strange that, well, I mean, again, there's like, in one way it makes perfect sense, but <laughs> in another way, it's strange that the folks who make these, who have these kinds of complaints about uh, reformers or people seeking to reform things, they, they're also apt to be devotees of, say, the kind of uh, strict constructionism or originalism in, say, constitutional interpretation, which is uh, a very rigid form of legal positivism, right, uh, that says, um, let's stop asking questions about what the law should be, right, right? And, and let, never mind that as a theory of interpreting uh, or as a theory of deciding hard cases, it's, per, it's totally useless, right? right. Yeah. Uh, because the whole point in hard cases is that we don't know what the text actually means, right? right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but this notion that we shouldn't be asking questions about what the law should be, right. but rather just the, the only salient question is what the law is. Right. Um, well, I mean, I don't know of any more th th thoroughgoing way of denying that there's like objective moral truth than right. just saying like, yeah, who cares how things should be? This is just how things are. And that's how it's going to stay. Yeah. Right. Positivism, which in, yeah. Where would we be if we'd followed originalism from the start right, right. now? Right. I mean, right. Honestly. Yeah. And, and how does, how does originalism help you answer questions about like whether, uh, I don't know, um, whether it's permissible to search a cell phone without a warrant or, right. or if that violates the fourth amendment. I don't know. What, what did the authors of the fourth amendment think about cell phones? What, what was their view on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then both parties arguing that case are going to just create a different narrative, a different story that's connecting those pieces and deciding what is going to constitute evidence and judge is going to determine what's relevant according to his own narrative, right? And his own understanding of the situation. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that obviously ties in directly to critical race theory. That's kind of where it came from by and large, right. which is, yeah. Understanding coming out of uh, legal realism into critical legal studies and, and the indeterminacy of law in general. And, and then, which comes quickly to understand the, uh, the failure and often cross purposes of anti-discrimination law yeah. when actually applied, right? Yeah. The of what, what it means or, or like you say, what is the, what is the letter of anti-discrimination law mean? Does it mean that, that we are trying to just change the, the uh, discriminated uh, discriminating circumstances that people live under? Or, or does it mean that no individual can use race to make a decision, right? And, and so there's sort of the, the formal process approach to it. And then there's the uh, substantive equal protection 
understanding of it. And those have always been in conflict, even from the reconstruction amendments. You have courts that will rule in this way. Well, obviously it was to help um, former slaves, let's say in Stoddard, um, to, to be brought out of the, the circumstances that white racism had put them in, right? Or slavery had put them in. And yeah. then the other side yeah. says, no, 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 that's, that's not the application uh, of that amendment. It's just to, to make sure that, that the, the state itself doesn't uh, allow um, race one way or another to come into the laws that it makes or, you know what I mean? So like- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, this whole, there's these a- Interpretations all along. Yeah, there's an, excellent, there's an excellent book on the history of um, the, the 14th amendment. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there are many excellent books. <laughs> But one that comes to mind is by William J. Stunts, uh, called the Collapse. Uh, William J. Stunts. Oh, okay. S T U N T Z. Who it's in the book is called the Collapse of American Criminal Justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, excellent, excellent analysis there uh, yeah. of the sort of tragic irony of. Um, the Supreme Court's efforts. He, he traces uh, the history prior to the middle of the 20th century, but a lot of it deals with the, the history of, um, uh, say like the Warren Court, it goes into a lot yeah. of detail there, the, the, the history of efforts to basically dismantle uh, inequities in the Jim Crow South through um, procedure, right? Right. legal procedure. Uh, right. And just the, the 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 failure of that project, and in many ways the, um, the uh, how those efforts actually brought about uh, the opposite of their intended effects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a system of legitimation for the circumstances that prevail, mm-hmm. rather than a system to change those circumstances. Right. Yeah. When you treat it as just process law or just uh, just formal requirements, then then all it requires is the court to say that that's in place, and then whatever the circumstances are are just and natural and to be expected. Right. And whoever's failing, they're the ones to blame. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so if it's not applied with um, the intent to make substantive changes, then it does just become a, a process of legitimation for the circumstances that already exist. Indeed. Right? Indeed. And that's, as, that, that's the starting point for critical race theory. Right. Understanding as if, as if, while attacking that, that very point. Yeah. As if, as if being read your Miranda rights is going to do you any good at all if you can't afford bail. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, going into that system. That, that's, yeah. <laughs> that that whole discussion it's it's like it's hard to have anywhere it's hard to have on twitter it's hard to have that discussion without like time cuz like yeah. what you just pointed out every one of these discussions is so you're saying white cops just like to shoot black people and, and it's like well let's back up okay <laughs> like we're going to have to go like 70 steps back yeah. like to the point like you're just talking about what, what gets these people in the system to begin with? Which laws, How what the, the prosecutors deciding to work on at that time? Which areas are policed, which aren't? Where, where is the basis for stopping someone? 
right? And, and checking, like there's just such a huge myriad of laws and things that go into play that create these, these uh, police citizen contacts in the first place that have to be analyzed to answer those questions. And I mean, you brought up just like one thing that's so obviously um, an injustice, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just like one, one tiny little piece of everything that's gonna happen in that in a process for every single person that begins in that system.